The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Great cash, homie. Would you please break the damn story? He took it out. Oh, for you. It's a Monday edition of PFTOT, PFTPM, PFT more than what we do during the two hours that we're live on PFT Live. Chris Sims, Mike Florio. And Chris, the draft is only 10 days away. Joe Burrow continues to be the consensus number one overall pick. The Bengals continue to hold that first pick in the draft. And there's a little bit of news as it relates to what the Bengals are possibly thinking about doing. Albert Breer of SI.com points out that the Bengals have used all of their allotted time to talk to Burrow in advance of the draft. Now, because there are no in-person meetings, no private workouts, the pro days had the plug pulled early in the pandemic, you can talk to any number of prospects that you want. You can talk to all of them if you want to, and you can talk to any of them three times per week, up to one hour per conversation. So... Math, sometimes a challenge for me. This is simple. Three hours per week of video or phone time with Joe Burrow. That's what the Bengals have been doing every week of this pandemic. That's a lot of time talking to a guy that it sure looks like they're going to be drafting in 10 days, Chris. Well, yeah, but, you know, I think, you know, realistically, Mike, a lot of the times when these type of visits happen during a regular offseason, you spend a full day with that player like he comes to your facility at 9 a.m in the morning and you have dinner with him that night and drive him back to his hotel you know at 10 p.m that night so it's 12 and 13 hour days and maybe even a follow-up the next morning who knows what it may be so you know this is a huge investment the cincinnati Bengals wanted to get to know joe burrow as the person but i'm sure deep diving into his football knowledge as well and i'm sure they want to know You know, every little tidbit about him, one, because, yes, he possibly will be the face of their franchise. Two, if they had a quarterback, you know, that they think is almost up there as far as their top grade on their board that they think is comparable, you know, they might want to get a feel for what Joe Burrow is, too, in case they wanted to trade the spot, trade it away, and maybe take another quarterback. Okay, well, we know this guy. This is what we're going to be missing out on. So there's a lot of different angles at play here. But, man, Mike, the one thing I hear – repeatedly is that Joe Burrow is an absolute stud in meetings behind closed doors, whatever it may be. And, you know, just being around him a little bit of the combine, Mike, you know, you could tell he's that way. He's got a, you know, I'm the sheriff. I'm Peyton Manning. I'm telling you, he really does. He's got a great aura and, and what do I want to say? Presence about him in a room. And uh, I think that's showing to a lot of people who are talking to him. And you make a great point that we need to emphasize because, for example, when Washington does the full workup on the quarterbacks, it'll be available at number two, Tua Tonga-Vailoa, Justin Herbert. That doesn't mean they're necessarily interested in drafting them. If you're going to trade that pick, you need to know everything you can know about the player because the team isn't moving up because it wants to have the second pick in the draft or the first pick in the draft, as the case may be. The team is moving up to get the player. 
So, you know, when you're trading a guy who's on your team, you already know everything you need to know about him. When you're trading a draft pick that's going to be used for a certain player, you need to find out everything you can. Now, look, uh, I think it's far more likely the Bengals are spending this time with Burrow because they intend to take him, and this is an opportunity to get to know him better at a time when there's not going to be an offseason program. But, uh, yeah, if there is going to be an offer from a team like the Dolphins to move up to number one, the more you know about Burrow, the more you can engage in a real and meaningful negotiation. And you know a lot of stuff about the guy. And you can rebut... You know, when they say, well, we think that's too much. We think this, we think that. You can say, nah, you're wrong about that. We think this, we think that. So so it's valuable. And and it's kind of unlike the Bengals to be that far ahead of the curve if they are thinking about doing this for the purposes of setting up a trade. Chris, I think they're doing it because they want to take the guy and they're taking full advantage of the time they have available to get to know him and for him to get to know the coaching staff because once he's picked, they're not going to see him until training camp, whenever training camp may be. Yeah, no. And, you know, Mike, I think you hit all the right points. You know, you you said it. You know, one, I think it's always good to do some due diligence on the top quarterbacks. You never know who might come your way four or five years from now in free agency. And now you have an inventory of knowledge built up on the player. Two, the point you made is spot on. You know, again, if Cincinnati's looking at there and going, man, this guy might be Peyton Manning. Oh, you want to come get him? Well, we think he might be Peyton Manning. So you're going to have to blow us away and that's going to, you know, raise the trade offer, you know, so, or, or whoever, if the Redskins are in that conversation with, you know, Justin Herbert or Tua or whoever it may be, but that's the reason you do your due diligence to, to what you're saying. You want to know what you're trading away and what kind of player you view him as and what he possibly could be uh, since you're trading him for another team and, and the mark he could leave on the NFL. And that leads right into a question from William 868-36045. Got to get those numbers right. Got to get the names right. <laughs> William wants to know this. What would it take for the Dolphins to pry Joe Burrow away from the Bengals? Now, keep in mind, Peter King reported today that neither Coach Brian Flores nor GM Chris Greer of the Dolphins want to make that huge move, want to give up what they have to give up to move from number five to number one to get Joe Burrow, but what do you think it would take ultimately to get the Bengals' attention, Chris? Well, I think it could be, you know, two first-round picks, you know, whether that's in this year's draft or, you know, a pick from this year's draft and next year's draft as far as the first-rounders go, and probably something as far as a second-rounder is concerned to be thrown into it. I mean, it's going to be a very, very expensive price tag to pay up, to, to trade up from number five to number one. These are elite commodities in the NFL world, as you and I both know. I mean, the number one pick, you should be getting the best player or certainly one of the two or three best players in the draft, according to a little bit to what your positional need is on your football team. So I think it'll be big time price tag. And I would tell the Miami Dolphins or anybody that's listening, don't do it. Negative ghost rider, build your football team. You have too many holes on your roster. You know, to me, the one player is not worth it. As awesome as I think Joe Burrow is, Mike, you know, I don't think the difference between Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert is worth trading, you know, three picks that might be in the first two rounds of the NFL draft. I don't think he's that much better. So that's where I would tell you the Miami Dolphins, hey, just build your football team here 
not one guy is going to make the difference. And are you saying that it would be the fifth overall pick this year plus another first rounder and a second rounder? Is that what you're saying it would I, be? I, yeah, I th- yeah, I think so. Yes, they'd probably have to switch the you know switch the five in the first round, the five and the one this year, and maybe throw in the one that's in the twenty uh, number twenty six this year along with it. They might have to give two of those this year, or at least the number five from this year and next year's number one pick along with the second round pick from either this year or next year. I think it would take something like that, yes, to move up to the number one spot. Now, when Washington moved up from six to two, the same movement, the same number of spots in 2012, they gave up pick six, two first rounders on top of the sixth overall pick, and a second rounder. So I think it's going to cost even more. I think that's think the it's precedent. More? It's, I, think, I think it's three ones and a two. And now it's it's your first rounder plus two more and a two. So it's not three first rounders, you know. Well, it it's it is. I mean, that's what but you know. You're switching you one. Use, you're trading one yeah, of the yeah. first rounders. But, but right. here's the thing: anytime you draft a player with a first round pick, you are trading a first round pick for that player. So the, so to get Joe Burrow, it's going to take three first round picks and a second round pick. You have to give Cincinnati the five, and two first-round picks on top of it along with a two. I think that's what it's going to take. Now, remember, the Dolphins have number five, right. number 18, and number 26. So, here, But here's the thing, and here's why I think there's pushback from Flores and Greer. I think Joe Burrow is coveted by owner Stephen Ross. I know he is. I know Ross loves him. And at some point, it doesn't matter what Flores and Greer think, Chris. What matters is what the owner says. And if the owner says... What is the bottom line demand from the Bengals? And let's offer it. What are they going to do? Quit? Right? The boss no, I has the final say. You can say that someone's contract gives them the final say. Baloney. The boss has the final say. And if Ross wants Burrow, if Ross doesn't want to roll the dice on Tua and his hip problems, or Justin Herbert, where there's this concern that he's never left Oregon, and how's he going to do? 3,000 miles away in South Florida, almost as far away as you could possibly get from Oregon, right? Uh, Let's just go ahead and make the investment and get the guy who is the clear, no-brainer, our next Dan Marino type of a quarterback. I could see Ross saying, what the hell? Nothing else we've done has worked. Let's go ahead and give up the draft picks, and let's go get this guy. Well, I want to say, but a lot of the reasons that none of the none of the other stuff has worked that they've done to this point is because he sticks his nose into the conversation too much. So that should be case in point to just go, no, you're great at real estate and you made a lot of money in other ways. It wasn't coaching or evaluating football players, Mr. Owner. I'm sorry. I know you got a lot of zeros after a big number in your bank account. Doesn't mean you know everything in the world. Why did you hire Brian Flores and Chris Gear then? I mean, crap, shit. Just pay yourself and be the head coach and the GM then. You know, so... I don't know what else to say there. That, that to me, would be the wrong approach. And, yeah, okay, even if you like Joe Burrow that much, man, he mu- you must think he's so much better than any of the other quarterbacks out there in this draft or even next year's draft. And also I would say, man, you're going to lose a, a huge support system to make sure that player works within your organization by trading away all those assets. So, yeah, it's dicey. And, Mike, you're right. I mean, there's no way I'm trading away three first-round picks to move up. You know, first off, I would tell you this, Justin Herbert, all right, 
I think has more of uh, has a higher ceiling than Joe Burrow as a player. So I would think it would be insane from that standpoint. And you're probably right, Mike. I was probably a little low on my overall price tag. You know, you're right. It it it'd probably take two first round picks, maybe a second, two second round picks to go with it, or maybe it does take all three first round picks. But that's insane in itself. To me, no, no, no. Almost no player is worth all those commodities. And Chris, one of the things I really respect about Jerry Jones, he cut out the middleman. He's not going to put some puppet in there that he's going to tell what to do. Yeah, I'll go ahead and I'll be the general manager. And let me tell you, it probably did cross his mind at some point about also being the head coach. If I'm going to make these decisions and I'm going to tell these guys what to do, then I'll go ahead and I'll be that guy. So I respect that so much more than an owner who meddles and tries to act like he doesn't meddle, like a Jimmy Haslam does in Cleveland. Oh, I didn't say pick Johnny Manziel. Yeah, right, you didn't say pick Johnny Manziel. Of course you did. And if you didn't, you made it damn clear that anybody who wanted to remain employed by you was going to pick Johnny Manziel. Just be the guy. Go ahead and be the GM if you're going to be that involved in telling uh, your staff what to do about their draft picks. Well, yeah, I mean, and to to what you're saying too, Mike, I mean, with Jerry Jones – I mean, he acts like a GM. He puts in the work like a GM. He's sitting there front row at the NFL Combine. He's always there on the field evaluating players. So he, yes, he's the owner, but really what you see is a guy that's around practice every day, always at the games, at at the Senior Bowl, you know, at the Combine, always getting a real firsthand look at these guys. So if you want to be the owner and do that, that's fine. But you need to go all in on the football aspect of the job. And that's where the Jerry Jones is special. Yeah, he owns the football team and does all the business dealings. But, man, he loves football. He loves evaluating players. And he is always there in the middle of the action to make sure he's got a good feel for it. So he acts more like a GM, really, than he does an owner in a lot of ways. He also likes doing some deals, and that leads to our next question from Sean Carroll. Any truth to the rumors about Dallas checking in again on Jets safety Jamal Adams? And I hadn't actually seen those rumors, but I know the rumors were rampant during football season. And look, I think once a team entertains the possibility of trading a guy, he remains in that bubble of possible trade until he is traded. And if the Cowboys really want him, And if Jamal Adams really wants to play for the Cowboys, and if the Jets have misgivings about Adams, great from a talent standpoint, maybe a little bit of a pain in the butt at times. If Adam Gase, the coach of the team, is thinking, my life will be easier if I don't have to worry about it. Because, you know, for a lot of these coaches, 5% of the guys cause 95% of your headaches. Maybe, And I'm not saying Jamal Adams is a problem. But, look, I'm not saying that this trade won't happen the fact that they entertained the possibility last year makes it a possibility now have you heard anything and do you think there's anything to this possibility that the Cowboys swoop in and make a move for Jamal Adams well I always got the feeling that up here in the New York area there was a sense just from people around the situation that they've got some type of offer that they felt you know uh blew the doors off that they would they would give up a Jamal Adams And the Cowboys, you know, as we've talked about, and I know this is the position I said in our draft last week when we talked about the NFC East, that I don't think they can leave the draft without a safety. You know, this has been a position they've been trying to, you know, uh, change or bolster on their roster for the last few years. We knew they were in the Earl Thomas trade conversations. 
you know, a year or two ago. Uh, so I get it, but I would tell the New York Jets. One, all right, so one, Mike, I've heard nothing substantial to make me believe that's real, okay? Two, I would tell the New York Jets, man, whoo, Jamal Adams is, you know, arguably the best player on your football team. You don't have a lot of difference makers. He's a guy on Sunday that can make plays and win football games for you. I would have a hard time giving up that type of player. And I would think the price tag is pretty steep right now to get that type of player. And I'm not so sure I can picture Dallas and Jerry Jones at this point of his life wanting to give those assets away just for one guy when he knows he's got a team that's very close. And I would think he would want, you know, more of the picks and things to kind of fill some roster spots here and there. Yeah, I uh, I agree. I don't with think you. the safety and puts them over the edge, and I don't go, "Oh, they're a Super Bowl contender now if they get the safety." I don't look at it like that. That roster has been quietly ravaged this off season. We focus so much on Dak and Zeke and Amari. They've lost some talent, and I, I think it's going to make I think it's going to make uh, for some real challenges for this team to be competitive. They were eight and eight last year. I don't see them being dramatically better this year unless Mike McCarthy has something up his sleeve or is a hell of a lot better coach inherently than Jason Garrett. All right, a couple more quick ones here. Scott Pollock, 10. Will the Seahawks address their offensive line in the draft? And, I mean, I, 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 let's, let's narrow it down to will, will they address the draft? Will they address the offensive line early in the draft, Chris? Uh, I, I would expect that it would be something in the first two rounds. You know, I would, you know, I, I think when I look at their roster more than anything, and it doesn't seem like Jadeveon Clowney is going to be back in the fold there in Seattle, at least not at this point. You know, to me, that first pick at the end of the first round, I would imagine could be between a pass rusher or, or, or that offensive lineman. Now, the offensive line, you know, has made improvements the last few years. It's not the same offensive lineman we saw, offensive line we saw two and three years ago where we went, man, Russell Wilson's got no chance. No, them trading for Dwayne Brown, a few draft picks have, uh, you know, uh, you know come, come about and help them out as far as Pachik at center and things like that. So I do think they address the O-line. I'm just not sure. It's going to be about a little bit of what's available there, I think, at pick, what is it, Mike, 27? and how they value the, guy, the top tackle left on the board at that point and the top edge rusher on the board at that point. I think a lot will come down to, you know, where the value is greater there for that end-of-the-first-round type pick. And one thing John Schneider, the GM of the Seahawks, loves to do is trade down and trade out of round one. Peter King has the, the history here in, in – 2019, they traded from 21 to 30. 2018, 18 to 27. 2017, 26 to 31, 34 to 34, then 34 to 31 to 34, then 34 to 35. Traded down in 2016. Traded the first round pick in 2015 for Jimmy Graham. Traded down in 2014. Traded first round pick for Percy Harvin in 2013 and traded down in 2012. So every year since 2012, they've either traded down one or more times in round one or traded their first round pick for a player. So whatever they do, Chris, count on them to trade down before they do it. I wouldn't be shocked. I mean, I get it. You know, they like New England have great confidence in their ability to find down the line guys where they go. Yeah. 
you know, everybody thinks this guy is a top 30 pick. Well, we found a guy we feel like that everybody's valuing, at, you know, a top 90 pick, but we think he's very close really in value to being that top 30 pick. You know, the Seahawks, John Schneider, Pete Carroll, that's why they've been relevant so long. They have consistently drafted well and found a way to build the football team. Yes, maybe they held on to some of their stars from that Super Bowl team a year or two long, a year or two too long. But overall, this is why here we are, you know, nine years later talking about Seattle still being one of the best teams in the NFC and the NFL. It's because of Schneider and Pete Carroll's ability to evaluate talent and then also evaluate how it fits into their system, not only as a person, but how the player will fit into their scheme. And that's where they're awesome. I mean, that's why they're one of the best in football. Should they be concerned about their ability to find down-the-line guys this year, given the limitations on the information that ordinarily would be available? I don't think so. I, I think these guys have a keen eye for what they see on film. And both of them, Mike, as we both know, have unbelievable social skills. So they're, uh, they're capable of taking guys that we might go, most teams might go, oh my gosh, I can't deal with Marshawn Lynch. Oh my gosh, I can't deal with Jadeveon Clowney. That's a scary, that's a scary proposition. Oh, DK Metcalf, he has a nose ring and he's a, and he doesn't run the full route tree at Old Miss. You know, they just say, no, screw it. We know the guy, we're good with people. We know him well enough to know he'll fit in here. They do their due diligence as far as I think their area scouts have a good, a good job of scouting the people, not necessarily the player, so they understand that. And then they have great confidence in their ability to uh, translate their people skills to making guys work on their football team. All right, one more question, and I only address this now because I saw a column yesterday from Dave Burkett of the Detroit Free Press that delved into the issue of what will happen if there's no football season in 2020. And look, none of us want that. Um, but we also don't want the NFL to be caught unprepared. And I think the NFL needs to be ready for anything and everything that can happen. And one thing they need to be ready for is no season at all. And one thing that comes from that, what does it mean for the draft in 2021? So that's the question. Um, what would you like the NFL to do with the 2021 draft if the entire NFL season is, God forbid, canceled, some kind of a lottery, keep the same order and let the Bengals have the first pick two years in a row, et cetera. That question comes from Will Lewis. Here's what uh, Dave Burkett wrote about yesterday. The NHL in 2005, Chris, when they were coming off of a year with no hockey due to a lockout, they had a lottery that was based upon three years of performance. And if you didn't make it to the playoffs or didn't have the number one overall pick in any of those three years, or in the fourth year because there was a draft the prior year before that, you got three balls in the lottery. If you either didn't make it to the playoffs or didn't have the number one overall pick, you got two balls in the lottery, and everyone else got one ball in the lottery. And that was their way of harmonizing the folks who said, everyone should have an equal chance. It should be a straight lottery regardless of anyone's past performance and those who wanted only teams that didn't make it to the playoffs in the three years that they had played prior to that draft to be in contention for the first overall pick. The bottom line is the NFL is going to have to come up with something, whether it's a blended lottery, whether it's all teams with equal shot. You can't just say we're going to redo the order from 2020. 
There was no season. It's all driven by how the team performs in the prior season. If there's no season, you need to have something different. And there will be factions and there will be people with self-interest and there will be people advocating for an approach that meshes with what they think benefits them. And the NFL is going to have to figure this out, Chris. I hope it doesn't come to it. But you know what? I've been saying the NFL should have a draft lottery, and maybe the first one they have is a product of necessity, and they realize, hey, this is a pretty good thing. Maybe we should do this every year. Well, I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, it, this is a way above my pay grade. It, this is a very complicated subject, One for one. You know, two, you know, I also think about, you know, from this standpoint, Mike, if you're a team who made the playoffs just this past season, right, but now you're kind of in like, okay, that's the end of the shelf life of that football team. We need to rebuild and change our team to where maybe a team was willing to accept that they might be one of the 10 worst teams in football next year or 12 worst teams in football next year. But now they made the playoffs the two years prior to this or three years prior to this or total rebuild mode. And now they don't get one of those three balls that's in the top 10 pick category. So I, that's where I worry about it. It's really tough. I, I mean, Man, this is, yeah, this is going to have to be a well-thought-out process where you get the competition committee, all 32 NFL head coaches, and try to figure out something with the brightest football minds we have that makes sense and is fair for everyone. That's the big thing. And, but, man, yeah, go ahead. But I'm scared oh, I if that happens. I, just, I, really I don't am. want it to come to it. I don't want it to come to it. But here's the thing. The virus controls the timeline. And we can be stubborn, right? But look at what stubborn got us from January and February. Stubborn yeah, is one of, the, one of the reasons why so many people are dead and still dying now. We have to be realistic. We have to be pragmatic. And until there's a vaccine for this virus, we're not going to have 70,000 people in stadiums. No. People aren't going to want to go until there's a vaccine no. or until there's a, a treatment that's as easy as taking one pill and you've kicked this thing's butt. So there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. Behavior has to change. Certain behaviors already have changed. Sports have gone into mothballs. They'll find a way, I think, to play the season. They'll move heaven and earth to play the season. And yeah, Mike. The, but, but still, there's a, a, a set of circumstances that says no matter what the NFL does, Chris, they still can't play the season. So they have to be ready for everything. And we need to be prepared for whatever may come. Uh, you know, it's going to be disappointing if there's no football season. But we have to be ready yeah. for whatever may happen. We can't get so invested in one outcome that we can't handle it if it doesn't work out the way we think it's going to work out. Man, that'll be torture. I don't know what the hell I'll do with myself. I mean, gosh, what are we going to talk about? Okay. And, you know, too, you know, Mike, I'm already coming around to the fact that we're not going to have fans in the stadium for at least the first six, eight weeks of the stadium of the year. I mean, there's no freaking way people are going to feel comfortable by September. Uh, I, at least the way it looks right now, to go, oh, yeah, I'll get in the stadium with 70,000 people. We'll all touch the same railings and, you know, armrest on the, the chairs in the stadium and do all that. No, I think that's just going to be too scary. You know, I, I'm, I'm coming to where, you know, as we're seeing here with more and more evidence, I don't think the players give a damn about COVID-19. And I understand that. And I'm not trying to say it's not right with some of the things we've done, Mike. I'm not trying to say that. But I just know when I was 24, 25 years old football player, I thought I was indestructible. It's part of the reason I lost my spleen. I was always like, ah, it doesn't matter who hits me. You can't hurt me. Um, 
And I think that's the mind frame of a lot of these players to where I do wonder, Mike, if, you know, at some point will the players sign some sort of waiver and go, hey, we're going to play football this year. The NFLPA, we agree on it. We're going to do it. We'll still make all the sacrifices that are necessary to help society, but the NFL will have to spend top dollar to, you know, make sure there's doctors on site daily, players and coaches constantly getting tested and keeping the precautions of, hey, like you're not going to see mom and dad or grandma this year after the football games. It's just the way it's got to be. But I I would hope that we could find some way to make football happen. I honestly think, Mike, at this point, if we keep going this way, it'll be for the betterment of America if the players and coaches and people in the NFL are willing to make the sacrifice. And we might lose money from no fans in the stands, but the ratings are going to be through the roof. I mean, I don't give a damn if there's no fans there for Saints Bucks, you know, with Drew Brees and Tom Brady. In fact, I'm going to like it even more. I'll be able to hear Drew Brees and Tom Brady when they cuss out players on the field for running the wrong route or not protecting. It might be more fun, you know. So that's what I'm really hoping for. It might be selfish. I would want it done the right way. But I I really think the players are going to be up for this. Yeah, it all comes down to what the circumstances are going to be, what restrictions will be put on their lives when they're not at the facility. Because once that virus gets in the locker room, it can run roughshod through it. Um, And and look, I know that it's a ridiculous example. And one of the reasons I put it out there was to try to encourage the NFL to begin the process of having a plan. But the idea of, you know, they've talked about doing it for baseball. You take everybody to one place. And look, it's a huge sacrifice. If you've got a family... You're going to leave your family for four months. Uh, I don't know that guys are going to willingly do that. But if guys want to play, and if that's the only way that it can work, and I still don't think it can work, that there are too many moving parts, too many logistics, too many issues like taking guys away from their families. Uh, they'd have to build this mega facility out in the middle of nowhere to facilitate all the games and have have uh, residences for the players and the coaches and everyone who had to be there. But they got to be thinking about every idea, even the crazy. They do. What, what, what is every step? You know, if, if we can't have fans, what can we do? If we can't play in our regular stadiums, what can we do? If we can't play games in California, what do we do? Uh, you know, if there's stay-at-home orders, what do we do? How do we make this work? They need to be working on it now. They don't want to wake up in June or July when they realize whatever ideas they have, they don't have enough time to – come to a conclusion as to whether or not it's practical. They need to be doing it now. They needed to be doing it a month ago, and I'm concerned that they haven't been doing it enough. All right, we've spoken enough for today. Two hours on air, another half hour here. It's PFTOT. Chris, you've got an unbutton coming up tomorrow. What do you have planned for it? Yep, tomorrow we're going to get into DBs. Everything's secondary, Mike. I'm going to rank the corners, rank the safeties. Been watching film with them all week. So excited to do that. Chris Sims unbuttoned. Got Tuesday, Thursday this week. Going to be doing an interview with Eric Armstead later today, too. That will be released at some point later this week, too. So excited for that. All right, buddy. Well, hey, great work as always. And uh, try to pick a spot and and stay there. You're moving around your okay. house too much. Although I did kind of like the window. This is two days in a row. I'm right here. I, I, two days I, in a row. I, I, I kind of liked I liked the window shot earlier. I actually did kind okay. of like that, especially if there's a chance that we're going to see Phil's head go by that window at some point. Mike, it's your show, so you ask, you shall receive. Tomorrow, the window shot coming for you. All right. All right, good deal. Uh, Chris, great as always. Everybody, we'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day. Check us out at ProFootballTalk.com. We'll see you Tuesday morning. 
Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.